Well, it's called the turning point. A lineman picks up a fumble and returns it for a touchdown. Or a politician makes a fatal gaffe in the debate. Or a salesman lands a mammoth account. The situation suddenly takes a 180. The landscape changes. The sides flip-flop. Well, this is what happened in Acts chapter 10. It was a turning point. God gave to Peter a vision that altered the whole scope of Christianity. Prior to this moment, the ancient world viewed Christianity as simply a sect of Judaism. The first Christians were Jews, living in Jerusalem, living under the Jewish law. But in Acts chapter 10, God opened the door of salvation, swung that door open wide to the Gentiles. He showed Peter that his grace is for every race, both Jews and Gentiles. At the time, God's people ate from God's menu in Leviticus chapter 11. Jews kept kosher. Gentiles didn't bother. What was eaten and what was not eaten was a source of Jewish pride. Diet set the Jews apart from everyone else. But it was lunchtime in Joppa, and God shows Peter a picnic blanket full of, of inedible entrees, unclean foods, all off limits to the Jews. And yet God surprises Peter. He tells him, Peter, pig out. Peter is asked to step over his religious prejudices to obey the will of God. And Peter could see that what God was doing with diet, he was also doing with humans. In light of the work of Jesus, religion had become obsolete. Keeping the law and its dietary stipulations no longer mattered. For salvation was by God's grace through faith in Jesus. This meant that folks didn't have to become Jewish to know God's favor. That salvation was now open to all men. Humans were no longer special and common, or clean, and unclean. After the cross, the only line of demarcation among men is whether we are in Christ or apart from Him. The cross became a new crossroads. And Peter was immediately called on to act on what he'd been shown. For this religiously devout Jew, he goes with Gentiles to a Gentile city, to the house of a Gentile, a Roman named Cornelius, to speak to a Gentile audience. Peter tells Cornelius' crowd about Jesus. And even before he finishes his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on the believing hearts. Without a single person getting circumcised, without a hearing or a lesson on Sabbath keeping, without a reading of the law, without offering a single sacrifice, perhaps over a plate of smoked ham and hog jowls for all we know, God saved Gentiles just as he had saved Jews, by faith. Salvation was by Christ alone and by faith alone. Acts chapter 10 forever altered the direction of Christianity and the composition of the church. And as Gentiles, we should be glad. Because of Peter's vision, we can follow Jesus and enjoy pork barbecue all at the same time. Aren't you glad? Well, Peter's vision was good news for Gentiles. But there were Jews who thought his actions were blasphemous. 
What was Peter doing, ignoring 1,500 years of tradition and running roughshod over the Jewish law? Not everyone was happy with Peter. There were angry Jews back in Jerusalem who called him into headquarters to provide an answer for what he'd done. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren (coughs) who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, that is the Jews, contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised or Gentile men and ate with them. Now recall in Acts chapter 6, Luke tells us that a large number of the Jewish priests had become believers in Jesus. Obviously, these priests carried a deep affinity for the principles of Judaism. They were staunch traditionalists and legalists. For centuries, you had to be a child of Abraham to be a child of God. Gentiles who wanted to know God had to join the Jewish community. So what is Peter doing now, swinging open the door to the Gentiles? These bigwigs in Jerusalem thought the Gentiles should at least have to jump through a few Jewish hoops to be saved. You remember the game we played as kids? Two lines formed facing each other. Everyone locked arms together. One group shouted, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sandy right over. Little Sandy would muster up ahead of steam, and he'd race toward the other line to try and break through the wall of interlocked arms and hands and legs. Imagine Jesus standing behind the church at Jerusalem. Jesus is calling, Red Rover, Red Rover, send the Gentiles right over. And here come those Gentiles, led by Peter, led by Cornelius, racing toward the church. Yet the Jews clenched their teeth. They locked their arms. They put up a wall. They're determined to maintain the status quo and keep the Gentiles out. And we need to take heed. For whenever a church tries to keep people out whom God has taken in, they are opposing the gospel. People of another color or from a different background need to be included, not resisted. Well, these Jews had questioned Peter's actions, but you see, they weren't privy to his vision. And so he recounts what he had seen on the rooftop. He begins in verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Peter admits he was initially reluctant. He had the same reservations as the Jews. He'd been weaned. He'd been brought up on the law. It was ingrained in his conscience. Verse 9, But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
Hey, ignoring these dietary laws, it wasn't Peter's idea. He makes it clear it was God's command. God had changed the rules, and God can do that. He's God. God said it was okay to eat bacon and put sausage on your pizza. In fact, he said it three times to hammer home the lesson. Verse 10, now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. The Old Testament law conditioned the Jews to view all of life as either clean or unclean. This was a grid that was placed over food and people and days of the week and houses and times of the month and skin conditions and every area of life. All of life was either holy or unholy. It was either clean or unclean. But the cross of Jesus Christ cleared away this distinction. For the law proved that all men were unclean. The only holy one is Jesus. Thus, a new dividing line was drawn. What decides our status now is our relationship with Jesus. Peter continues his story. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. It was Peter, it was six other Jews, along with the three Gentiles who had come to fetch him. You know, in one sense, they went just 30 miles up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea, but in another sense, they crossed a 1,500-year-old ocean of religious precedent. And he, that is the Roman centurion Cornelius, He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Notice God sent an angel to Cornelius. You know, God likes to involve angels in the working of his church. He wanted to save Gentiles, and so he sent an angel to speak to Cornelius. Peter says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Just like at Pentecost, it was a sovereign move of God. Peter and his Jewish friends had done nothing special on the day of Pentecost to warrant God's salvation. It was all God's grace. And that is exactly the way it came upon Cornelius. They had it been circumcised. They hadn't gotten baptized. They hadn't, they didn't even know about any kosher laws. And yet before Peter finished his sermon about Jesus and his instructions on faith, the Holy Spirit fell upon their hearts because they were believing and trusting in Jesus. The way it happened to the Jews is the exact same way it happened to the Gentiles. Verse 16, then I remembered the word of the Lord That is Jesus. John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was Jesus' promise to his church. The Gentiles had just gotten in on the promise of Jesus. The power of the Spirit is God's gift. Jesus gives it to whomever he chooses. And he has chosen to give it to the Gentiles. And if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, When we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? 
But when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Who could argue? It was obvious to all the church, as well as to Peter, that the salvation of the Gentiles was God's work, just as the salvation of the Jews had been God's work. For the moment, the opposition was muted. Yet before we leave this story, please note that Luke saw fit to include this story twice in the record of the Scriptures. I think that's amazing. Luke wanted to emphasize this story to the point of placing it in the Scripture two times, Acts chapter 10 and then the report of it in Acts chapter 11. And remember, he wasn't writing on a 500-gigabyte hard drive. He was writing, writing on a very limited parchment scroll, and yet he chose to include this story twice. Luke knew that what had happened at Cornelius' house was no trivial matter. It was a major breakthrough in the history of redemption. Now salvation, now God's family, includes both Jews and Gentiles through the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. You know, this makes us appreciate Peter's step of faith. He went where no Jew had gone before. Peter cut a trail where there wasn't one. You know, it takes special men to pioneer new works and to blaze new trails. It takes clear vision and decisive action, an unwavering conviction and courageous faith. Once the trail seems safe, then other people jump on the bandwagon. But in the beginning, the pioneers are few. And such was the case here. There were few Jews willing to follow Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. For the most part, the gospel was spreading from Jew to Jew. Other men needed to climb on the bandwagon. And there were some branching out. He says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now remember, Hellenists were Jews who had adopted Greek culture and language. They were Jews, but they were living as Gentiles. At least these unnamed Cyprian evangelists were willing to go cross-culture with the gospel. They began to target secular Jews. Soon, they would be preaching to Gentiles. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. The gospel, the spread of Christianity, is moving north. Not just to the hills of Samaria, not just to Caesarea, but now up into Syrian territory, to the incredible city of Antioch. Antioch was the capital of Syria. It was a city near the Mediterranean coast, 300 miles northeast of Jerusalem. After Rome and Alexandria, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Antioch's population topped half a million people. The city was an architectural wonder. Its main street was paved with marble. It was lined with marble columns. Historians say that it was the only road in the ancient world with street lamps. 
Its splendor earned the nickname Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. Antioch of Syria was situated on the Orontes River, 20 miles upstream from the ocean. It was known as the gateway from from the Eastern Roman Empire to the West. And Antioch was a key hub for travel. It was the perfect place to launch an outreach into the Gentile world. As we move on in the book of Acts, we find that the church that started in Antioch became the beachhead for Christianity's invasion into the Gentile nations. And obviously, the Jewish believers sensed the significance of this church there in Antioch. That's why they sent Barnabas to encourage this startup work. Verse 23 speaks of Barnabas' arrival in Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. If you're having a baby and you need a name for your son, can I suggest Barnabas? would be a good name. You know, it means son of consolation or son of encouragement. Barnabas befriended Saul when he went to Jerusalem to meet the disciples. Barnabas was always reaching out and building bridges. And under Barnabas' leadership, we're told, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas did a really good job in a very wicked city. Realize Antioch was dedicated to the Greek goddess Daphne, who in Greek mythology was seduced by Apollos. Thus the city's seedy legacy spawned some sexual perversion. It ran rampant in the streets of Antioch. It was a city full of temptation, yet in desperate need of Jesus. Barnabas' word to the believers was, Hang tough, be tenacious, strengthen your grip on Jesus. And, of course, today we live in similar surroundings. In our culture, sex is worshipped. Perversion is commonplace. Ours is an anything-goes culture. It's a people-gone-wild world. We, too, need purpose of heart to continue with the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. The church in Antioch was growing quickly. Barnabas needed help. So he sought out a man perfectly equipped to reach Gentiles, his old buddy Saul. Of course, Saul would later be named Paul. And all pastors need to mimic Barnabas' example. You know, sometimes pastors are reluctant to admit they need help. They insist on doing it all themselves, but not Barnabas. He was humble enough to recruit a man and share the ministry with someone who ended up being more gifted than himself. The growth in Antioch was a credit to Barnabas' unselfish and servant-hearted leadership. Like I say, if you're having a son anytime soon, a good name for him is Barnabas. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Before Antioch, the followers of Jesus went by different names. They were the believers or the disciples or the receivers of the word or the servants or the people of the way. 
just to list a few. But they were first called Christians at Antioch. Recently, I ran across a list of famous people who earlier in their life or in their career changed their name for a more sophisticated, a more stylish-sounding name. Robert Zimmerman, you know who he became? Bob Dylan. Marion Morrison, he later went by the name John Wayne. Good move for Marion. Leonard Sly. Leonard Sly. You know who Leonard Sly was? Became Roy Rogers. Everyone knows Ishur Danielovich. We now call him Kirk Douglas. Peter Hernandez is Bruno Mars. I'm praying for Bruno Mars. He'll be a great worship leader when he gets saved. And we all know that Eric Bishop is now comedian Jamie Foxx. Finally, I couldn't resist this one. Betty Persky. Betty Persky. She became Lauren Bacall. But the believers in Antioch stuck with their uncouth, embarrassing names. Christian was originally intended as a derogatory term. The suffix I-A-N means the party of. Thus, Christian meant the party of Christ. This was how the Romans referred to their slaves. Claudius' slaves were known as the Claudians. Anthony's slaves were known as the Antonians. Thus, for believers in Jesus to be labeled Christians, it was meant as an insult, as a mockery. And yet the Christians were honored to be slaves of our Lord Jesus. Paul gloried in being a fool for Christ's sake, he said. Peter later wrote, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. We should consider it a privilege to bear shame for Jesus' sake. Well, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. The prophets uttered impromptu, extemporaneous messages from God. They would deliver a specific message for a specific circumstance. And of course, the gift of prophecy is a spiritual gift available to us. Then one of the prophets, his name was Agabus, he stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, the gift of prophecy is exciting to get a direct word from God's Spirit. And here a gift, or, or when the gift of prophecy is spoken, it keeps the church on the edge of its seat keeps our ear to the heavens, knowing that a, a prophecy can be given, creates an excitement in the church. But here, Agabus's prophecy was a warning. Dire economic times were ahead. Agabus foretold of a global famine. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions this famine in his Antiquity of the Jews. All across the empire, communities were affected. The famine produced high prices and food shortages, People starved to death. The church, though, was somewhat insulated, for they shared and they took care of each other, not only from person to person, but from church to church. Thus, 
Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And here they are sharing with each other. Here, the church in Antioch gets this prophecy that there's a famine in the land. They decide to help Jerusalem. The daughter church helps out the mother's ship. Often in the past, our church has helped out other pastors and other churches when they've fallen on hardened times. You never know when you might be the one who needs the help later on down the line. Well, they took an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Verse 30, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church at Antioch, they take a collection. They send the relief money to the church in Jerusalem. Paul, Saul and Barnabas are those they trust with it. You know, Galatians 6 verse 6 teaches us, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And the Antioch church understood their debt to the Jewish Christians in Judea. The Jerusalem church was the one that had sent them Barnabas. Now it was time for them to return the favor. The Jerusalem church had fed them spiritually. Now it was their turn to feed the church in Jerusalem physically. And so they sent them this offering via the hands of Barnabas. Chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Well, when it rains, it pours, doesn't it? Isn't that what we're hearing tonight? On top of the famine, a wave of persecution also struck the Jerusalem church. And the culprit was this Jewish king, King Herod. You've got to understand, the New Testament is full of men named Herod. The first was Herod the Great. His rule ended shortly after Jesus' birth. His kingdom was divided among his three sons. One of the sons' name was Aristobulus, who had a son named Agrippa, who is the Herod here in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa was Herod the Great's grandson, just so you can keep them straight. This Agrippa was a haughty guy. He was schooled in Rome, for one thing. He was sent off to get his education. And while in Rome, he made friends with a man named Caligula. Later, Caligula would become emperor. And when he did, he promoted Agrippa to king of Judea. His friends in high places, his Roman education made Agrippa an arrogant man. And he was also a shrewd politician. He worked hard to win over Jewish loyalty. So when it dawned on him how much the Jews in Jerusalem hated the Christians, he tried to rack up some political points by mounting a crusade against the church. That was what spawned this persecution. Verse 2, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was the apostle James, one of the original 12. Tradition says he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. And his execution no doubt elated the Jews. Oh, they couldn't have been happier. In fact, the Jerusalem Post announced Agrippa's approval rating had climbed 20%. So he decides to go after the Christian's ringleader. 
And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. He arrests Peter. Agrippa should have known this was no way to keep getting ahead. No way. We're told now it was in the days of unleavened bread. Evidently, Agrippa would have killed Peter immediately had it not been for the Passover. It was during the Passover. So when he had him arrested, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, the Greek word translated squads is the word tetrad, which denoted a group of four soldiers. So four squads of four soldiers, each were dispatched to stand guard over Peter. This was maximum security, by the way. Sixteen soldiers were guarding Peter. Someone may have told Agrippa about the earlier time when the Sanhedrin had arrested Peter. You remember God sent an angel to bust him out. King Herod wanted to make sure that Peter wasn't going anywhere this time. And so around the clock, there were two soldiers chained to Peter and two more standing watch. As if four soldiers would be a match for a battle angel from God. Well, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Peter is surrounded by trouble. Literally, his head is on the chopping block. And what does the church do? Oh, they pull out the big guns, mind you. They, they pull out all the stops. Rather than write letters or picket or protest, or sue, they pray. It was the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson who wrote, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Nothing is more powerful than a praying church. And by the way, I thank you for your prayers this past weekend. I was at a men's retreat in El Paso, and we had four men give their life to Christ. And I just sensed it was because of the prayers of our church back home. Thank you. Well, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now put yourself in Peter's sandals. You're awaiting execution. You're sitting on death row. The hangman's due at any moment. You're under heavy guard. There seems to be no possibility of escape. What would be your disposition under such circumstances? Well, there's one certainty. You sure wouldn't be sleeping peacefully. The next day, Peter's scheduled to get sawn in two, and the night before, he's sawing logs. What's with that? What amazing peace. Peter had a supernatural composure. Again, Peter is in a storm. He's surrounded by the wind and waves, now of a different variety. But this time, he keeps his eyes on Jesus, and he remains unshaken. He stays above the situation. He walks on water, if you will. 
Keep in mind, every miracle recorded in the Bible started out as a problem. We all need to get our eyes off our circumstances and fix our eyes on Jesus. For once you do, God can stop working on your attitude and he can start working on the miracle. Peter had learned, rather than asking whys, he was cutting Z's. Peter's walking on water again and enjoying a supernatural peace. But remember, he's not doing it alone. There's a praying church in his corner. Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. Now notice, Peter is snoozing so soundly that the light doesn't bother him, doesn't wake him up. The angel has to slap him in the head, I suppose, to wake him up. We're told, and his chains fell off his hands. One commentary makes the observation that throughout the Scripture, angels are always in a hurry. You ever notice that? Here the angel tells Peter, arise quickly. This angel wants to cut the rug. He's got places to go, things to do. Only once was God ever depicted in a hurry. You remember when that was? That was when he rushed down the road to greet his prodigal son. He was the father who ran to greet his son. That's the only time God was in a hurry, was to greet a prodigal who was returning. But angels seem to always be in a hurry. And we can guess why. If heaven and the presence of God were your home and you were dispatched to this earth, don't you think you'd want to tie up business as quickly as possible to get back home? That's why angels never dilly-dally. <laughs> Well, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Now, you'd think if the angel unlocked the chains on Peter's wrist, he could just as easily slip on Peter's shoes for him and wrap his coat around his shoulders. Why did Peter have to do it? Well, there's almost always two parts to a miracle. God always shoulders the heavy lifting, but he usually requires us to play a part as well. He always wants our participation also, as minor as it might be. Verse 9, so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. At first, Peter thought he was dreaming. You ever had those moments when you're kind of in that twilight place between you're not sure whether you're awake or you're asleep or you're dreaming or what's going on? He's still in that early morning fog between the time you wake up and that first cup of coffee. That's where Peter's at. He's pinching himself. Is this real? Am I dreaming? What's going on? Reminds me of the lady who had a strange dream. She said afterwards, she said, I dreamed I was eating spaghetti. But when I woke up, my pajama string was gone. Well, verse 10. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, (coughs) which opened to them of its own accord. It was like an electronic door before the age of electricity. 
And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And Peter's just shaking his head, finally waking up a free man. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Peter has been rescued by another angelic jailbreak. Old Peter keeps getting thrown into prison and his God keeps breaking him out. Our Lord is so faithful. And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Peter goes back to join the prayer meeting to let the guys know God answered their prayers. By the way, this was probably the same house that had hosted the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. It was probably the same place that saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's now the upper room, the site of the prayer meeting, where the church asked God to deliver Peter from jail. That was a happening place. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Well, When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Rhoda was so excited at what God had done, she forgot Peter. She left him at the door. She was so excited God had answered her prayer, she left the guy they'd been praying for. But isn't that the point of prayer? It's not the answer, but it's what you get to know about God as he answers. It's the work, it's the, it's the relationship, we have with, relationship we have with God. It's the revelation from God that we receive. It's not the answer, it's the involvement we have with God that makes the difference and excites our hearts. Well, they said to her, you're beside yourself. Rhoda, you're crazy. They didn't believe it was Peter at the door knocking. Now, this is amazing. They had been praying for a jailbreak. But apparently, they didn't have a lot of faith. Because they didn't really expect God to answer their prayer. Yet, she kept insisting that it was so. So, they said, nah, it's his angel. You know, evidently, the early church believed in guardian angels. That everyone has an angel assigned to them specifically. That we all kind of have our own heavenly bodyguard. I've known, I know I've kept mine busy for a long time now. I'm not so sure there is one angel for every believer. I, I don't know that you can prove that. But the Bible does teach, and the early Christians definitely believed in the reality of angelic activity in their lives. And I don't think there's any reason why God doesn't employ His angels to watch over us and to work on our behalf as well. Verse 16 brings us back to Peter. Now Peter continued knocking. I suppose so. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. The church in Jerusalem had prayed for Peter, but apparently they had prayed some pretty puny prayers. Their prayers weren't laced with much faith, but at least they prayed, which I think teaches us a big lesson. 
You don't have to pray impressive prayers. Jesus said a puny prayer, a prayer just the size of a mustard seed could move a mountain. A prayer with just a tinge of faith will move the hand of a willing God. Certainly God answers mighty prayers of faith, but he also answers frail, feeble prayers as well. The only prayer he doesn't answer is a prayer that was never prayed. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. This was another James. This was James, the brother of Jesus. He too was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And the angel departed and went to another place. Well, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Remember the beautiful seaside Caesarea was the Roman capital of Judea. It served as Herod's retreat. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Now Luke gives us the political background here for what's about to happen. The Phoenicians had bribed Herod's aide Blastus. They'd sent lobbyists down to sort of grease his palm, gain a political favor. Israel was an agrarian society. Tyre and Sidon were sea merchants. Israel looked to their northern neighbors for trade. The Phoenicians needed Israel for food, so they bribed Blastus for favors from Herod. Just goes to prove that what goes in Washington is nothing new. Herod also needed to drain the swamp. The problem, though, is that Herod was the swamp. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. This was a political rally held in the seaside theater there at Caesarea. And whenever we go to Israel, first day, we always stand there in the exact spot where Herod sat. In fact, you can see his perch, the perch that was set aside for special dignitaries. That's exactly where Herod was sitting that day. What a spectacular venue this was and is today. They still have concerts in this theater. A hundred yards away, the waves slapped slap the beach. On that day, the sky was clear. The sun was high in the sky. The seats in the theater rose upward. Today, among the ruins, entire upper decks are now missing. The original theater had a seating capacity of over 4,000 people. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, records this incident and dates it 44 A.D. He says that Agrippa wore a robe made entirely of silver. Imagine the sun flashing off of that, his silver armor. 
and he entered the city early that day. Josephus writes this, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. He made their eyes hurt. Agrippa's silver threads would have caused Elton John to look like a thrift store shopper. He was dressed to the hilt and he was full of himself. He was pompous. He was arrogant. On this day, he was trying to dazzle the crowd with beauty and eloquence. He wore an outfit he borrowed from Dancing with the Stars. And the people started to chant. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. Oh, boy, he should have never let them say that. And here Josephus adds the kicker. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. The crowd that day hailed Agrippa as a god, and he did nothing to stop them or set them straight. Hey, beware, never ever stand in God's place. As the old saying goes, never take the bows for God. When God is being praised, your place and my place is in the shadows. And what's ironic here? Nobody took this praise seriously except Agrippa. All the crowd was up to was flattery. The visitors from Tyre and Sidon, they were trying to manipulate the king's ego to get a favorable trade agreement. Someone observed, flattery's like bubble gum. Enjoy it for a moment, but don't swallow it. Don't fall for flattery. Herod's belly was too full of something. He came down with a severe bellyache. Verse 23 tells us, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Once again, an angel's involved. He struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. That's Luke's play-by-play. He was eaten by worms and died. But, to, but listen to Josephus for the color commentary. He's even more graphic. He says, A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He was carried into the palace and rested in a high chamber. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being in the 54th year of his age. How ironic, the crowd in the theater said he was divine. They called him immortal, yet five days later he was dead as a doornail. Worms ate him. Herod's plight is a commentary on Isaiah 42, verse 8, which declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Don't take bows for God. When God is being praised, you get into the shadows. It should make us all sick to our stomach when someone steals God's glory. That's what it should do. Make us all sick to our stomach. Don't you agree? Sick to our stomach. Verse 24. 
But the word of God grew and multiplied. At the beginning of chapter 12, Agrippa is cutting down Christians, mowing them down. And the church is behind closed doors. At the end of the chapter, this same Agrippa is cut down himself, and the word of God is multiplied. Isn't it amazing how God can turn the tables so quickly? We need to always look past whoever might be sitting on the earthly throne to who's sitting on the throne in heaven. God is on the throne. God is the one who ultimately calls the shots. Years later, Peter would write, 1 Peter 3 verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I'm sure he was thinking of his experiences here in Acts chapter 12. Well, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They returned to Antioch. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Barnabas and Saul had delivered the offering, the famine relief, to the church in Jerusalem. Now they returned to Antioch with Mark, but not for long. They don't stay there for long. For in Acts chapter 13, the outreach shifts from the Jews to the Gentiles, and Saul is about to take center stage. Saul and Barnabas are about to go on their first missionary journey, and that's where we'll pick it up next time in Acts chapter 13.